this morning, we're going to consider, do something a bit unusual. Last week, we considered Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and I think we went down through about 35. Today, we're going to consider Luke chapter 1, verse 26, down through 37. And we're going to consider, I guess, what you could call the opposite side of the coin. Last week, we considered that we celebrate Christmas because of who Jesus is. This week, we're going to consider that we celebrate Christmas because of how Jesus came. Would you hear now the word of God? Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you're the God of possibilities. We thank you that the things which are impossible for man are not impossible for God. And that our salvation is as certain as your power. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was saying last week, we saw that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the King of David, and we celebrate Christmas because of who He is. All those aspects of who He are provide elements of what salvation is. And today we're going to consider that we celebrate Christmas because of how He came. I I don't know about you, but when I open a Christmas present, I typically don't think about how the gift came to me. I mean, some of you may have re-gifted something to me, and that's okay. Some of you may have gone down to Kroger when you got quadruple gas points and bought a gift card. That's okay too. In fact, it's a good idea because through the Kroger Rewards Program, you also help support North Roanoke Baptist Church as we try to retire debt. Some of you may have gone on the smile.amazon.com and gotten two-day shipping with your, uh, what is it, prime membership. And, you know, what do we do without Amazon? It's amazing. But whether you got it at Amazon or Kroger or you re-gifted it, I really don't think about where the gift I got came from. I just open it and I say, well, is, is it a gift I like and appreciate and enjoy? And last week we saw Jesus certainly is a gift we should appreciate and enjoy and glory in and delight in. But you really don't fully understand the gift until you also understand how the gift came to you. The gift and how the gift came when it comes to Jesus are interrelated. 
radically interrelated. We, we can't understand the magnitude of the gift of Jesus unless we understand the precision, the humility, and the power by which he came to us. So last week we unwrapped the gift that Jesus is, and this week we're going to, by God's grace, see that it is possible for Jesus to be who he is precisely because of how he came. To understand and enjoy and appreciate God's blessing in the gift of Jesus, there's three things I believe we must see. First, we must see that Jesus came as promised. Second, he came in humility. And finally, he came in power. First, we must see that Jesus came as promised. In verses 26 and 27, God sends Gabriel the angel to Galilee. Now, a point of clarification, I was, I was at a, a play yesterday and they were musing about maybe uh, deceased people became angels and all this other stuff. Angels were created in the beginning and, and people don't become angels. When they, when they die, they don't become angels. This is, this is Gabriel, the angel, the messenger from God who is sent with a message from God to Mary about the salvation that he's bringing to the world. God sends Gabriel to Galilee, a region, by the way, that was looked down upon by the religious class in the temple precinct in Jerusalem. It's interesting that Gabriel comes not to Jerusalem to announce God's salvation, but to Galilee. And Galilee was looked down upon because of the preponderance of Gentiles who lived there. Galilee was essentially considered God-forsaken country. But in Isaiah 9, before we learn that Jesus will be called This is a familiar passage. Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet first writes these words. Words that we don't consider perhaps as often. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The promise of Christmas is that Jesus has come to bring His glorious salvation to the places and to the peoples that we would least expect. Aren't you glad, Roanoke, Virginia? Roanoke, Virginia. Nobody knew about Roanoke, Virginia when Jesus came. Nobody knew about Salem or Buckcannon or Botetot or Vinton. But God knew. And God came to the overlooked and the unlikely places to bring His salvation to those who were walking in utter darkness. Luke tells us that Mary is a virgin three times, twice in verse 27 and again in verse 34. This is necessary because God had promised centuries earlier that the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel, God With us, we can trust in Jesus because He comes in a way that proves that God is trustworthy. Read the Old Testament, read the account of Jesus' coming, and you get what you should be expecting. He comes as promised. In in the same verse, Luke tells us that Jesus, that while His mother is a virgin, His adoptive father Joseph is of the descendants of David. Last week we saw that God promised a forever king On David's forever throne. Even though Jesus doesn't have a human father in Joseph's line, a faithful adoptive father will do just fine because Jesus is more than a king on David's throne. 
He's King of kings and Lord of lords who sits on the throne of all thrones. God can use the faithfulness of anyone who humbles themselves as Joseph did in raising Jesus to accomplish the purposes of the Lord. Jesus came as promised. Which brings us to a second observation. Jesus also came in humility. The word conceived in Mary in verse 31 is loaded with theological significance. For Jesus to be God with us, He had to truly be able to identify with us. I love that hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where it says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. What a great summary of the doctrine of the incarnation of God the Son. To appreciate gift the gift of Jesus, we must consider the humility that it took for God to come down to us. We could never earn or build or buy our way to Him, which was the lesson of the Tower of Babel. God had to stoop down to us. As the theologians say, He condescended to us. Now we say, don't be condescending, that's mean, because you're putting someone down. But Jesus put Himself down. In order to take our place and be our sin bearer and our substitute. The God who created us personally entered his creation as an embryo conception in the darkness of a young maiden's womb to rescue us from the darkness of our rebellion. In Philippians 2, Paul urges us to follow the shocking example of Jesus' humility in His incarnation. In other words, it's not only the way we're saved, it's the model we follow when we are saved. What do we do? We come down, we make ourselves low as Jesus did. How did Jesus make Himself low? Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hang on to it. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What should we learn from what Jesus did for us? We should esteem others as more important as, our, as ourselves, as Christ did for us. It means we can and we should take the low place for one another, knowing that none of us, none of us will ever be called to stoop as low as Christ stooped for us, because none of us is God leaving the glory of heaven for the stench of a feed trough. I mean, think about the humility for a moment that happens in the conception of God the Son in Mary. The omnipotent God enters humanity in our most vulnerable state as an embryo. He doesn't come as a 33-year-old man and just get on a cross. He walks through every stage of human dependency and weakness so that He could redeem every stage of human dependency and weakness. He learned to eat. He learned to drink. He learned to sit up, bird up, burp. Sit up, bird up. What is bird up? Sit up, burp, crawl, walk. He would learn to read and write and memorize by age 12. He would be teaching the scribes in the temple that he was the son that Isaiah had promised, the exalted king and the suffering servant sent to redeem God's people. And redemption, by the way, paying the price for our sin and rescuing us from death through his death is why Jesus came. Paul continues in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. You see, the light of the world left the glory of heaven knowing He would begin His redemptive work on earth in a dark womb and soon be hanging on a Roman cross and then lying lifeless in a borrowed tomb. No greater act of humility has the world ever known or will the world ever know than that God came down for us to destroy death by dying for you and for me. Jesus came as promised. Jesus came in great, astounding, overwhelming humility. But finally, Jesus came in power. It's important for us to see that Jesus is conceived of a virgin to fulfill Scripture, but it is also critical for another reason. It's critical for us to understand that Mary is a virgin because it's necessary for Jesus to be the holy child, verse 35, who would grow and become the holy man who offered himself as the spotless lamb of God, an acceptable substitute for the people of God. In other words, the point of Mary's virginity is not her purity, but Christ's purity. Like every human with a human father, Mary could only be pure if God gave her his favor, if God made her pure. She's a sinner like the rest of us. Jesus is born of Mary, but a man is not his biological father because God is his father. And Jesus could not receive the sin and the death which come through Adam. So when Jesus is conceived in Mary, Mary contributes what any mother contributes to the making of a son. But God creates in Mary what any father contributes to the making of a son. In other words, the conception of Jesus in Mary is simultaneously an act of condescension. God comes down. But also of powerful creation. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and the Most High overshadows her and the creative power of God makes possible Jesus within Mary. Overshadowed means to cause a shadow by interposing something between an object and a source of light. The same God who hovered over the dark waters of the deep in Genesis 1 and spoke light into existence now brings His light to the darkness of Mary's womb to create within her the humanity that He would wear to reverse the curse of death. Creation and new creation in Christ our King, the Most High God, worked a miracle in Mary's womb so that by being united with Jesus through faith, the death-cursed, sin-marred sons and daughters of Adam could become the redeemed and everlasting sons and daughters of God. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Come to Jesus, the second and last and greater Adam, promised in the Old Testament, and receive everlasting life. What a God. What a Savior. In other words, Jesus is 100% man. He's 100% God. In 100% one person. Two natures in one person with no confusion or division or dilution of his natures. He is the one person who completely unites God and man in his flesh. You say, 
That's crazy. I don't get it. Well, welcome to the club. I mean, understanding the Trinity and what is called the hypostatic union of the natures in Christ, you're, you're not going to be able to work it all out. Is one of those things you take by faith. But I was at a conference recently when a pastor, Alex Amaya, explained the miracle in this way. He imagined Jesus teaching the teachers in the temple when Mary and Joseph forgot to bring the Savior of the world home. Can't imagine how that conversation went. But, but he envisioned after Jesus was teaching the teachers for a while that one of the teachers was getting a little frustrated with this snotty-nosed 12-year-old kid telling them all this stuff about Isaiah that they had never seen in there before. And he envisioned some teacher saying, Say, kid, where are you from? And Jesus goes, Well, it's complicated. You see, on my mama's side... I'm from Bethlehem. But on my daddy's side, it's not really where I'm from, but what's from me. You see, I'm the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things are made. What? Just how old are you anyway? Well... It's complicated. See, on my mama's side, I'm 12, but on my daddy's side, it's not how old I am. I'm before time and space and matter. I'm the eternally begotten Son of God and Word of the Father. You can't know and worship Him unless you know and worship me. What would you say your name was again, son? Well, on my mama's side, my name is Jesus. But on my daddy's side, it's Emmanuel, which means God with you. All right, son, where'd you say you're going? Well, on my mama's side, I'm going to the cross. And then to the grave. But on my daddy's side, I'm going to the throne of all thrones, where I will rule everything over everything for all time. I've come to take as many with me from every tribe and tongue and language around the world. And here's the question I have for you Will you follow me to the cross so that others may know? Me as king. And if to these great truths of the identity of Jesus, you reply, that is impossible. God anticipated your objection. And in verse 37, Gabriel says, with God, nothing will be impossible. You don't believe me? Your very old relative Elizabeth is pregnant with the prophet who will prepare the way for your son. You remember when Abraham and Sarah were old and I promised to give them a son? It happened. Remember when Hannah was barren and she prayed for a son? She got a son. Remember when Samson was powerless and he was under the portico and there were Philistines surrounding him? And I gave him power and he, and he killed more enemies of God in his death than he did in his life? It happened. Remember when Esther, Queen Esther, 
was Israel's only hope of survival. And they fasted and prayed for three days. And I delivered Israel. It happened. You see, Christmas says that God can. Nothing is impossible with God. And can I, can I just say, this verse, verse 37, has a special significance in the life of your pastor. And I would argue probably most pastors. You see, when a, when a wife sits in my office and says, I just can't forgive him, Christmas proves nothing is impossible with God. When a family member pursues an ungodly lifestyle, and it seems that they will never repent, Christmas proves that nothing is impossible with God. When an alcoholic says, I just can't shake it, Christmas says God has come to shake you awake to His goodness and His mercy and His forgiveness and His grace, so you no longer need to dull the pain of your past failures and disappointments. Nothing is impossible with God. When, as a pastor, I look at the distance between who we are as a church and where God wants to take us, and I think, God, I can't do this. God says, you're exactly right, you knucklehead, but nothing is impossible with God. When I stare into the mirror, like no doubt many of you do, and wonder, will I ever be the preacher or the father or the husband that God wants to make me to be? Christmas says, God is at work changing me, changing you through the setbacks, through the disappointments. Through the momentary failures. For as Paul says, he who began the good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Christmas declares God can. And we know that it does because Jesus did everything necessary to be our sinless sacrifice and our eternal high priest and king. He came as promised. He came in astounding humility. And He came in divine and creative power to give us new life in Him. We celebrate Christmas because of how Jesus came. How then ought we respond to so great a Savior? Colossians chapter 2, 6 says, As we have received Christ, so also we should walk in Him. How do we respond to how Jesus came? First, we trust in Him with confidence, knowing He perfectly fulfills what God has promised, and then we walk in Christ according to His promises. So many Christians believe the gospel, they trust in Jesus, they see the power of God in the gospel, and they say, I believe God can save me. And then they live the rest of their lives believing God can't change them and make them more like Jesus. It's like they've punched their ticket on their get-out-of-hell-free card, but they've forgotten that God wants to do something with the rest of their life to make them more like Jesus. And there's a ton of promises in the Scripture that God has the power to make you and mold you into the image of Christ if you will open yourself up to His power. Secondly, we take the low place for one another and for the world that still needs to be rescued. 
We take the low place for one another and for the world that still needs to be rescued. How, are the, how is the world going to see Jesus unless they see it in the church of Christ? Haughtiness and bitterness and complaining don't have a place beside a God who came down from heaven to rescue us. Put your anxiety, your angst, your complaint, your bitterness alongside of Jesus who descended into the darkness of Mary's womb and it just doesn't add And finally, don't doubt the power of God in the midst of your weakness. Some of you are afraid to take the low place because you're afraid that God just might get a hold of your life and do something radical with it. Some of you are afraid to let go and let God because you're afraid of what God might do. Let me tell you, Take the chance. Take the ride. Nothing is impossible with God.